It's one of the hottest days of summer. Baha'u'llah and his companions, void of any comforts, have arrived in the old city of Akka. They had no physical or emotional strength left in them. Every single person on that boat was seasick, and they were extremely dehydrated and famished. People are jeering and they are hostile towards Baha'u'llah. Akka was a flea-infested town and was known for its horrible water and climate. It was meant to serve as a permanent grave for the most dangerous criminals of the Ottoman Empire. They are far away from their homeland. The unknown is awaiting them. In August 1868, Baha'u'llah endured the last of the banishments meted out to him by the Persian and Ottoman empires. The story of his banishment, while filled with suffering and heartache, is essentially a story of hope. It is a story of the power of light to illuminate darkness, no matter how oppressive it may seem. You are listening to the Baha'i World News Service. This is part two of a podcast series commemorating the 150th anniversary of the arrival of Baha'u'llah in the Holy Land. In the last episode, we heard about Baha'u'llah's departure from Edirne in Turkey, his journey through the Mediterranean Sea to the Holy Land, and a brief history of the cities of Akka and Haifa, where he would spend the final decades of his life. In this episode, we focus on his arrival to the fortress city of Akka and the events in the period that immediately followed it. What a difference between the vision of the assembled at the seagate of Akka and the vision of Baha'u'llah saying that, upon our arrival, we were welcomed with banners of light, whereupon the voice of the Spirit cried out, saying, Soon will all that dwell on earth be enlisted under these banners. On 31 August, Baha'u'llah and his companions finally arrived on the shores of Akka. The journey was harrowing. They were weary and physically frail. The horrible conditions of the city and the dreadful treatment they received upon arrival were meant to be sure signs of their imminent demise and the end of Baha'u'llah's cause. Yet, Baha'u'llah's description of that scene evokes hope. Two despots conspired to banish him to extinguish the light of his teachings. But their efforts did anything but that. Today, Baha'u'llah's faith has reached the farthest corners of the earth and been embraced by millions. And Akka has become a place of pilgrimage to which thousands arrive each year in devotion to his life and teachings. The journey from Adrianople to Akka took about three weeks by land and by sea. During this period, they were subjected to filthy living conditions, um, insufficient food and water, sleep deprivation. Baha'u'llah, together with about 70 of his companions, arrived in Haifa on the 31st of August of 1868. They were counted and they were handed over to the government officials 
there, who a few hours later transferred them into a sailing boat to be sent to Akka. The journey from Haifa to Akka is about 10 miles, and it shouldn't have taken more than two or three hours to cross with a sailboat. But on that day, in the middle of the summer, with no wind, that journey lasted eight hours. It was eight hours of positive misery. By the time they got to Akka, it was around four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so we're here in Akka in the old bazaar, and right on the corner is a coffee shop. This coffee shop used to be the police station when Baha'u'llah and his companion arrived in Akka. It was here where they stopped, where, they were, where their identifications were checked, and initially they wanted to house them in this building. The seagate that we see today didn't look like this at the time when Baha'u'llah entered Akka. At the moment, there is a promenade that runs right in front of the seagate that people can walk on or even drive on. And then there is a port which has been established in front where people dock their boats. These things didn't exist at the time when Baha'u'llah arrived in Akka. The water from the sea came all the way up to the gate. The gate which is there right now is an exact replica of the original. The original ones uh, were uh, deteriorated. Akka did not have proper landing facilities. So when they arrived, the authorities informed Abdul Baha that the men would have to go in the water, which would cover up to their shoulders, and carry the women on their shoulders. But at Abdul Baha's insistence, the women were carried ashore one by one, sitting in a chair. A huge crowd and mob had gathered at the seagate and on the rooftops, and they were shouting obscenities and curses at them, jeering at them. Before Baha'u'llah's arrival in Akka, the population of that city had been informed that uh, criminals of the worst type were coming and that they deserved cruel treatment. So many of them decided to gather at the landing site to receive them, to jeer at them, to mock them, to see the arrival of who they called the God of the Persians. The sister of Abdul Baha Bahia Khanum, she was a young woman at that time, and she understood Arabic. She could understand that they were telling them that they were going to be put in dungeons and in chains, or they were going to be thrown into the sea. Akka was built over the ruins of the Crusaders by the Ottomans, and it was done in such a way that they did not fill the water reservoirs underground. So all the water, all the sewage would filter underground, and that's what would cause a constant stench, a bad smell. Akka was damp, it was filthy, and it was flea-infested. In fact, there is a proverb that says that if a bird would fly over the city of Akka, it would drop dead. When he arrived in the prison of Akka, his sufferings were intensified to such a degree that he designated the city the most great prison. When they arrived, they didn't know where they were going to be taken. 
or how they were going to be treated. They were first conducted to the police station where they were identified and counted, and they were told that they were going to be imprisoned in that space, and it was nowhere sufficient enough to house 70 companions of Baha'u'llah. Uh, Baha'u'llah objected to this idea, and then they were conducted to the barracks. The barracks were originally used for the Turkish troops, but because there was such a large group, this was the only place that could actually accommodate all of them. There was a line of soldiers all the way from the Seagate to the barracks, and they were conducted along narrow alleyways and in the marketplace. They continued along, along this route to the barracks where they climbed the stairs. A big metal gate was locked behind them and was bolted shut. Baha'u'llah was placed in a filthy room, completely bare, with no furniture. There was no water for drinking except a small pool, which had already been used for washing. And the rest of the companions and followers of Baha'u'llah, they were all taken into one big room, which was ankle deep in mud. The conditions were such, the heat and the stench, that Bahia Khanum was overcome and fainted. And as she was falling, they caught her because there was no place for her to be laid down because of the mud. There was a prisoner who was weaving a straw mat in the corner of the room. This straw mat was taken from him, was laid on the ground, and she was laid on the straw mat. Then they found a puddle of water in the same room that they were in. They scooped up some of this water and they strained it through some cloth and they put it to her lips. This made her to regain her consciousness for a little bit, but that water was so filthy and so foul-smelling and bad-tasting that she became sick and she fainted again. So some of that water was taken and was splashed on her face and then finally she regained consciousness. On that first night, prisoners, among them mothers with infants, were repeatedly denied food and water. The fate of the most fragile among the companions was uncertain. The children among the group were crying, dehydrated and famished. By midnight, Abdu'l-Baha was able to reach the governor who provided water and a small amount of cooked rice. The rice was inedible. The companions searched their belongings. One found dried bread, ten days old. Another came across a bag of sugar. These they mixed together with water to create something edible. They offered it to Baha'u'llah, but he refused, insisting that it be given to the children. This would serve to ease some of their hunger pains momentarily, allowing them to sleep. Uncertainty weighed heavily on the companions. But time would demonstrate to the people of Akka that Baha'u'llah and his companions were no criminals. The true character of Baha'u'llah's life, of his teachings and of his community, would eventually transform the attitudes of the people of Akka, the physical environment, and the social conditions of the city. Among its inhabitants, some embraced Baha'u'llah's faith, including the colonel under whose command were the prison guards who first received the weary band of exiles from the sea. Eventually, Baha'u'llah was moved to a room. Bahia Khanum says that he didn't 
even want to have the luxury of having his own room in the prison cell. But we insisted. He needed that room for the revealing, the tablets, and after our insisting, then he agreed. Shortly after their arrival, they were all gradually falling sick, except for Abdul Baha and another friend who would take care of everyone. Some of them passed away, among them two brothers who passed away in each other's arms. The exiles were not allowed to bury the dead in the Muslim cemetery in Akka. So they took the bodies and they took them to a village outside of the city and buried them in a pit with all their clothes on without performing any of the rituals connected with proper burial. Three days after their arrival at the prison city of Akka, the Farman, the edict of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, was read at the mosque, which was the place where public announcements were made. And in that edict, it was established that Baha'u'llah was not allowed to associate with anyone and that he was banished there for life. It was here that for the first time the prisoners could hear what their sentence actually was. They were declared as enemies of God and Islam. They were not allowed to associate with one another or with any of the citizens of the city of Akka. They were going to be perpetually imprisoned and they had to be under strict confinement during this period. Later, the governor himself came to the barracks to inspect the condition of the prisoners. And it was during this visit that he got the first glimpse of the personality of Abdu'l-Baha, his sense of dignity. And he realized that these people were not regular criminals. They were noble individuals. Abdu'l-Baha, accompanied by a few believers, went to see him. But the governor was discourteous and spoke to him in a provocative manner. One of Abdu'l-Baha's attendants started to talk back at the governor and gave some offensive remarks. Abdu'l-Baha immediately ordered him to return to his room. This action by Abdu'l-Baha not only diffused a dangerous situation, but also opened to the eyes of the governor of the existence of a real leader among the prisoners who would act with authority and justice. Abdu'l-Baha managed to have more interactions with the officials and the governor. The more they realized the greatness of Abdu'l-Baha and his personality, the more they realized that these people had been imprisoned unfairly, and they started to ease the restrictions gradually and slowly. The easing of the restrictions included things such as allowing them to go to the public bath once a week, or to go to the mosque to say their prayers, or to go to the market guarded by some soldiers to buy provisions. About two years after their arrival in the barracks, one major event happened. Mirza Mehdi, who was serving his father as amanuensis, he was released from his duties that afternoon, and he decided to go to the roof to enjoy the breeze of the summer. Mirza Mehdi 
was the younger brother of Abdul Baha. That would make him about 22 years of age at that time. He was reciting the prayers that Baha'u'llah had revealed in Suleymaniyeh. As Mirza Mahdi was wrapped in his prayers, he fell through a skylight on the roof, which he knew that it existed, but he had lost count of his uh, paces and steps. He fell through the skylight down about a uh, five or six meter height onto a wooden crate, which pierced his ribs and shatters his legs. They brought a doctor. Everybody knew that he was in a terrible shape. He had internal bleeding. Later, Baha'u'llah himself went to his bedside to visit Mirza Mahdi and spent some time alone with him. He said, I would like my life to be sacrificed for those friends who come here. The Baha'is who come here far walking for months and they are not able to see you. Baha'u'llah silently left the room. Mirza Mehdi passed away on the 23rd of June, 1870. It wasn't long after the passing of Mirza Mahdi, something like four months, that the, that the regiment of soldiers arrived in Akka. They needed to be housed somewhere, and the only place available was the barracks. And finally, they were allowed to leave the barracks. And very soon, his wish was granted, and the doors of the prison were opened to the friends and the believers. Baha'u'llah and his companions stayed in the prison for two years, two months, and five days. It was four months after the passing of Mirza Mehdi that the doors of the prison opened. And for the following six years, Baha'u'llah and his family stayed in different houses in the city of Akka until finally, in 1877, he was able to leave the prison city of Akka and move to the countryside. He spent two years in Mazra'e, and from there he moved to the mansion of Bahji, where he spent the last 13 years of his life until 1892 when he passed away. While he was imprisoned under the strictest confinements, it was in this place that he raised his call to proclaim his cause. Baha'u'llah was banished to Akka because two despots wanted to extinguish the light of his revelation. But it is from Akka that Baha'u'llah addressed to the kings and rulers of the world. Pope Pius IX, Napoleon III, Tsar Alexander II, Queen Victoria, and Nasidrin Shah. During his two years, two months, and five days in the prison, Baha'u'llah maintained his correspondence with believers and composed some of his best-known works. He completed the Sureh Heikal, Tablet of the Temple, boldly proclaiming his divine mission to the rulers of the East and West. All from his solitary confinement in that small cell in the barracks. The Ottoman and Persian officials had thought that by banishing Baha'u'llah and his companions to Akka, Baha'u'llah's fame would die out and he was going to surely perish without a trace in that far-off land. 
They thought that the light of his religion would go out very swiftly after his arrival in that city. The light of Baha'u'llah's religion did not die in Akka. Today, millions of people are learning to apply his teachings to their individual and collective lives for the betterment of the world. And thousands of Baha'is from around the world visit the Holy Land for pilgrimage every year, visiting sites associated with Baha'u'llah's life in Akka and Haifa, including the very prison cell he was taken to after his arrival on 31 August, 1868. You have been listening to a podcast episode about the arrival of Baha'u'llah to the Holy Land. In the next episode in this series, we will explore the writings of Baha'u'llah addressed to the kings and rulers of his time. The stories from Akka were told by staff members at the Baha'i World Center, who have been guiding pilgrims and visitors in various Baha'i holy places. The ambient sounds were recorded in the old city of Akka. The music comes from an album composed in commemoration of the bicentenary of the birth of Baha'u'llah. For more information, visit news.baha'i.org.